Okay, so last time we were in Genesis 43, and today we're going to be in Genesis 44 as we continue to work our way through the events that uh, occurred when uh, we see Joseph being reunited with his brothers and uh, all the interaction with Joseph in Egypt and so on, and we're, we're about halfway through this. In Genesis 43... We last saw the brothers of Joseph dining in his house. Um, and they were brought to the house by Joseph's command that he gave to his chief steward. Said, you know, kill the calf or the, fat, the animal. I'm not sure what they ate, but, you know, we're having a feast. That was pretty obvious. And so they're there at Joseph's house. And they've been sent back by Jacob with Benjamin along. Judah had pledged himself as a surety for Benjamin because Jacob did not want to let Benjamin go. Uh, his words, he is the only other son of my wife. And we'll see a little bit more of that today. But they had to go. They'd been to Egypt once. They found on the way home money back in their bags, but they had bought food to try to survive the famine and they get home and uh, all of these things were weighing on them that they found money in one bag on the way back. When they get there, all the money's there. While they were there, they were accused of being spies. Now they've got thievery to add to that as a potential accusation, even though they didn't do anything. And in typical human fashion, they don't make any real plans. They just eat the food until it runs out. And so then they went back to, to Egypt, took Benjamin along because uh, they were told by Joseph that if you don't bring Benjamin, you're not going to see me. And Joseph is the one they have to see if they want to buy food. So they get there. Joseph sees them off in the distance, sees Benjamin. And that's when he sets up this time at his own residence. And they're fearful to be at Joseph's residence. We don't know what it was or anything like that, but there has to be no doubt being the number two man in all of Egypt and being very successful in everything Pharaoh had given him to do it probably was quite a grand place. And they're looking at it going, this can't be good. This is going to be a situation where there's some event invented that's going to put us in slavery to this man and they saw it as a potential trap and out of that fear they went to joseph stewart and explained about finding the money from the first trip and uh that they have that money with them as well as additional funds to buy more grain and the servant gave them an answer that should have really opened their eyes to several things we're going to see today it really probably didn't but he says don't worry, your God and the God of your father has given the treasure in your sacks. I had your money, meaning they're talking to the man that put the money back in their sacks and that they don't have anything to worry about, which um, that wouldn't comfort me much, but nonetheless, that's what they were told. So then they have this feast with Joseph. The Egyptians won't eat with the Hebrews. That's... Uh, beneath them by a long way so they separate joseph is seated separately but apparently in the same area because he brings food to the table of his brothers and he does so 
to take care of them. But in the midst of that, he gives Benjamin five times the portions that he gives the rest of his brothers. And that pretty well takes us through where we were in Genesis 43 and where we stopped. So let's read first Genesis 44, 1 through 13. Who's got that for us and can read it? Genesis 44, 1 through 13. Go ahead, Alan. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the for the grain. And Joseph did as Joseph told him. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is, this, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil thing. You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who, found, who, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So the meal's over, and Joseph commands the steward, fill the sacks with grain, fill them up, get them as full as you can get them, Give them the most abundance you can as far as what they can carry. Oh, and like before, put the money in the mouth of each of the sacks. And also he said in verse 2, put my cup, you know, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest man's sack, along with the money. And so the servant did all those things. And so that apparently was done between the time they ate the meal and sunrise, because at daybreak, as soon as the sun was up, the men, meaning the brothers, were sent away with their donkeys. And as they were just getting out of the city, Joseph says to the steward, Get up, follow the men, overtake them, and say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? And so the idea is you're going to accuse them when you get there, and when you find the cup, you're to say, it's not, Is this not the one from which... My Lord, meaning Joseph, drinks, and which indeed he uses for divination. Now this is Joseph speaking, and he says, So accuse them in that with these words, and say, You have done wrong. Now here's an interesting question. Did Joseph practice divination? 
It got quiet. <laughs> What's that? Sure sounds like it. Well, Joseph gives instructions to the servant to say, this is a cup that Joseph uses for divination, right? Now, we're not using the name Joseph. Um, as far as we know, this man is still nameless to the brothers, not some other name or his Egyptian name even gets used here. <clears throat> but that's to be the, the accusation. And so if we were to try to answer that question um, with rigidity, I mean, the scriptures don't say he doesn't. The scriptures don't say he does. But we do have some hints about Joseph leading up to this time. One of the things is he's asked to interpret dreams, right? Does he take any personal credit as he interprets these dreams? No, as a matter of fact, he goes out of his way with Pharaoh, with the baker. Well, God gives these dreams. God gives the information. And maybe God will give me the, or maybe not maybe, but God will give me the interpretation. And so... Joseph is clear it's not something within him. So we don't have any indication in the scriptures that Joseph did anything with divination. So why would he bring this up in the accusation? Well, um, things get a little bit um, vague with regard to that, trying to go out and find somebody to talk about and give some information. <coughs> it is believed that Egyptian officials were often given uh, a cup like this to use as both a sign of their position and authority as well as many of the ones who were under the title of visor, advisor, those kinds of words um, that would help the king in those ways often would use a cup like this and they, you know, we talk about today reading tea leaves, right? You know, that's, let me read your tea leaves and some of the, the uh, occultish kind of practices. Um, what they would do is swirl water. It was with the, when the way the water swirled and they somehow were supposed to be able to read information out of that. And so it was a common thing. Uh, they'd read that, swirl the water and interpret it. Um, so, we don't have any inclination that Joseph uh, did this kind of thing. I don't believe that Joseph was into divination. It would have been way, way out of character from everything we've seen in Joseph. But for whatever reason, as a part of the way he's dealing with his brothers, he has this be in that part of their accusation that this is really some really some cup that is really precious to Joseph. He uses it in in these ways. And... I also find this very interesting when I'm reading the commentaries that go along with trying to understand or find more detail. Um, the commentaries are awfully kind to Joseph. Uh, and I don't mean this like telling falsehood or anything. I just mean the, the nuances with the words that they choose. What was Joseph doing with his brothers? What would you call this? He's getting the runaround. He's testing them. Might even be deceiving them. Is this, is this not a deception? I mean, really, this, this is a deception. Now, I'm not going to try to... Um, in, in human terms, was this unfair to his brothers? 
I mean, in terms of our mental equations of right and wrong and fair and unfair and, you know, I was an only child, but I had cousins and I would watch them fight in ways sometimes, cousins that were brothers and sisters with each other, and I would watch them fight in ways that sometimes it's like, I bet he broke his leg, you know? I mean, it got pretty wild with my older two cousins in particular on occasion, and, uh, so, in terms of family squabbles, I mean, th this would be kind of like, you know, putting one over on them to get even. Uh, at the same time, this is pretty deceptive. Um, and, and it's pretty out in the public. I mean, he's accusing them as, a, as an official. He's not just Joseph the brother out here doing some things. And, but as I read the commentaries... Nobody says this was part of Joseph's deception. Um, Russell even said, put one over on him. Well, all of the terms that I saw commentaries use all were soft. It's a ruse. I mean, it just doesn't really get at the fact that um, did Joseph have to do a deception to do this? Well, there may have been some concern on Joseph's part about who are they, what are they going to do, and how are they going to behave a little bit toward me? If they find out I'm still alive, will they feel it necessary to kill me to finish up the, the uh, lie that we started? Uh, I, I, I don't know, and, and we don't get any in inclusion of the thoughts of the men and people here about motivation. But, but anyway, I just found that interesting, and I'm just going to leave it there. Yes, sir. I think I was going to say, too, it's like, I think that I, I, I would call this sinful, right? It's a sinful action. He's being sinfully... He's simply treating his brothers. He's telling his steward to lie to his brothers. So, like, we can say that it's black and white. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think that, like, what God, when, even towards the end of, in, in, end of Genesis 2, what God means for evil, or what people mean for evil, God means for good, too. So, God, even through this ruse, through Joseph's sinful actions, preparing this, like, overarching narrative, too. So, I think that there's, there's some things there we can say that God's sovereign hand is in even. Well, this God's ruse. sovereign hand's in this, and. And, uh, it, you know, if we want to get the biggest, most flagrant, I don't know if flagrant's the right word, but explosive example of this kind of thing is when we get to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Who does Peter put the blame on? The Jews. This man whom you crucified. First, he convinces them that he really was the Son of God, and then says, and you crucified him. When we look at the scriptures, did God plan and even ordain that crucifixion? But does that remove any of their guilt for their part in it? Absolutely not. They worked out of the motivations of their heart. They, they were after Jesus intending to kill him, and they did it. God used the death of Christ. It even says in the scriptures, it pleased him to crush him. Why did it please him? Because that was payment for our sins and iniquities for those he would redeem out of the world. So we see all kinds of examples. That's the, the most significant in all of the scriptures the, about man's sin being part of what God uses. So the fact that God is using this, I don't think, relieves even Joseph of responsibility for how he behaved. The scriptures make no statement before it's done 
about Joseph. But I just found it very interesting that the commentators just, they just almost ran from any kind of accusation of Joseph. Um, so anyway, he sends the steward out. And the steward indeed overtakes them and accuses them just as Joseph told him to. Now, so, that, so far the accusation has occurred, but we haven't done any checking up to see what really happened. And so the brothers have a quick response. Uh, why does my Lord speak these words? Far be it from your servants, meaning far be it from us, lesser people, you're an official, to do such a thing. And they continue with their defense in verse 8. Look, the money we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from Canaan. See, we're honest people. Now, would a starving uh, thief might actually have done the very same thing? Yeah. I mean, they're, I don't know that they're thinking very well, but their point is, we've already proven to you we're not thieves or we'd have kept the money. We're not after something to steal. And so, uh, I find this fascinating. What was the connection here between the money from the first trip its return and this steward they're standing face to face with. Yeah, this is the man that's already said, don't be concerned. Your God and the God of your father is blessing you. I'm the one that put the money in your sacks. So I don't know why they didn't bring that up. Maybe they didn't want to um, go against this steward. Uh, but, but their argument then, and they say it, how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house, meaning from Joseph's house? We're, we're not thieves. We've already shown you that. And they could have said, you yourself told us you put the money in our sacks. We didn't attempt that. They don't bring that out. Then they give in verse 9 their indignant pledge. With whomever your servant it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So this is what they say. We are so sure of ourselves. We're sure we didn't do it. We've already told you we had no reason to. Whoever we find it, take his life. And the rest of us then will remain as slaves. The idea is you're not going to find it, so we don't have to worry. We can give you a, a big pledge. Was this overconfidence? Well, why was this potentially a foolish pledge? What evidence should they have already seen that would make them realize this was foolishness? Yeah, they didn't take it the first time and it showed up there. I mean, maybe you didn't put steal it, but it's been already made clear to you that somebody's doing something here. They've got to have a purpose behind it. And why do you think it didn't happen again? But... There we are. And, you know, even in another way, when they went to the house, they were suspicious that this Egyptian official was going to try to find an excuse, make, up, make some event happen so he could take them as slaves. Wouldn't this fit right in with that? So they already were suspicious once, but now they have forgotten all that. And so... The, slave, the a steward responds, well, okay, let's do according to your words. However, he modifies it. He says, he that's found with a cup shall be my slave. But the rest of you will be considered innocent and can go on your way. So they hurriedly 
Each man took his sack to the ground and opened it up. And they began a search from the oldest to the youngest. And of course, we know what's going to happen. And indeed, it happens. They find the cup in Benjamin's sack, and the men tore their clothes. And this, of course, is a symbol of great anguish. They are, they are beside themselves, is the way we would say it. They, they don't, this is the, the worst thing that could happen. And each man loads his donkey. What do you suppose it was like being in their presence while they're loading that donkeys, loading up the donkeys? I mean, can you put yourself there in the event? They've, they made these great claims that, honestly, were truthful claims. We're not thieves. We're not, we have no motivation to do that. We didn't do it. And we're sure of it. That might have been a little foolish based on previous experience, but now they're loading their donkeys. And what are their thoughts? Oh, boy. Benjamin's the one in trouble. I mean, there's got to be a lot of things going on in their mind. This is the one dad was concerned something would happen while we're here. Jacob's going to die from the grief. Judas probably remembering his promises to Jacob before he left. I'll take responsibility for him. I'll be a surety for that. What a difficult time this is going to be. And so they reload their donkeys and they go back to the city. Now verse 14, if you look at that, has some key words right at the beginning of it. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Remember one of the things that's happening here at the end of Genesis is Judah is being coming more prominent with his brothers he's becoming the leader and so it isn't when the brothers got to the house it's when judah and his brothers got to joseph's house he was still there meaning joseph is still there and they fell to the ground before him and so joseph continues with the accusation in verse 15 what have you done don't you know that a man that such a man as I am can indeed practice divination? What's he saying to them? What's his point? I can practice the divination as a man such as I am. He sets the rules. Well, he sets the rules. He has the power to basically. I, I, yeah. yeah um, so these... High Egyptian prominent men, the leaders, believed that many of them could do that. It was a part of the trappings of the office. So he's looking at them going, hey, I'm one of the powerful ones here. And I can tell what's going on through divination, a meaning probably insinuating, that's why I sent my servant after you. I knew, I could, I could tell uh, through my divination, I knew you had my cup. I knew where it was. And so that's why you were being followed and taken up in this way. So he's role playing. It is deceiving. He's hiding his real, real identity. He's going, look how important I am. Don't you guys know how important I am? Um, so, um, 
I'm trying to remember where did the next okay right here. So Judah, so then Judah says, well, he takes the lead. He's verbalizing. He's the one speaking for them. What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? Probably two kinds of questions at the same time. Probably one of uh, one one part of this question is uh, not intending to have any answer. There's nothing to say here. I mean, we're speechless. We can't justify ourselves. I think the I think that nothing we can do is the answer to that. Um, maybe he's opening the door to Joseph to say. What would you believe? You know, what could we show you to show you that this isn't us? That we don't behave this way. We didn't do this. This is unjust. But he goes on to say, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. <clears throat> what iniquity has been plaguing them all through this encounter? When troubles came, what did they say about it? Do you remember? God is punishing us for harming Joseph. They even had a little argument about it in the first visit, right in front of Joseph. And they don't know he can understand because he's using an interpreter about, this is happening because of what we did to Joseph. And another one says, I told you not to do that. And, of course, they all participated in the light of Jacob. So... Um, Joseph has, uh, I'm sorry, this goes on in verse 16 where Judah says, Look, we're my Lord's slaves, both we and the one that was found possessing the cup. So what is Judah saying with that statement? We're the Lord's slaves, all of us, including the one that had the cup. Share the blame? It's a recognition of position, isn't it? I mean, whether they actually lived in outright slavery to Joseph, in this land, Joseph's powerful and they're not. And for all practical purposes, as well as potentially all, all their future, they're slaves to Joseph. They've got to follow what he says. Now, in verse 17, Joseph responds, Far be it from me to do this, meaning I'm not going to make you all slaves. I'm not that harsh. But the man possessing the cup shall be my slave. So he's saying, Benjamin's now my slave. He's going to stay here. He's going to serve me. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So... Here's Joseph sending them back. Why is this worse for the brothers going back as they think about this, which doesn't exactly happen this way, but, well, yeah, I guess it does. But why is this worse than staying as a slave? He promised to Jacob that Benjamin would be no harm to him. I mean, as a brother, what are you, what are you going to say when you get home? Um, you know, here, here you are and, and anticipating, you know, Jacob's already said to them after the first trip, what have you done to me? And now they talk him into taking Benjamin, 
partly with the logic of, well, if we don't take Benjamin, we're all going to die anyway, so what's the risk here? But sure enough, the worst thing that they could imagine is happening, and Joseph is sending them back in the worst condition they could be in. Does Joseph know that? Yeah. You know, it's also interesting to me at this point, up, up to now in the story, there's another potential accusation that has been totally overlooked. What's the other thing that they could have been accused of? It's not even mentioned. They had the money in the sacks again. So how could they be innocent? If what's in the sack would prove some guilt, they're all guilty. They all had money in their sacks. One more guilty, he had the cup, if that's going to be the standard of proof. But that's not even mentioned. And I think that reveals something to us about what Joseph is doing. Joseph set this up to put those brothers in this position to have to think about going back in front of their dad without Benjamin. I can almost wonder if Joseph wasn't thinking, I wonder what story they'll make up this time. Because it couldn't be their fault. But anyway, that's where we are at this point. Let's go ahead and read verses 18 through 33. Who can do that for us? And Judah went up from him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I might set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our young brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I... Come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us. Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shield. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Read 34 as well. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So now Judah 
the burgeoning leader of the group approaches Joseph and he says, My Lord, may I please speak a word in your ears? He asked permission to speak. Somebody that important, you just can't start demanding attention by speaking. He says, Don't be angry with your servant. You're equal to Pharaoh. So, so he's asking him um, to please, based on his position, give me permission to speak freely with you. And, you know, he makes the introduction here very clear that we view you as equal to Pharaoh in power. And he goes on then with his speaking to Joseph, and he says, My Lord, asked us if we had a father or a brother. He's talking about the last time that he was there. And we told you we had an old father and a young child of his old age. And we've already talked about lad, younger child. You know, we, we know that Benjamin was going a year from now to be moving to Egypt with eight children. So he's not a high school kid or younger. So, uh, Judah goes on, now his brother is dead. So he alone is left uh, and his, of, of his mother, and his father loves him. And so he brings up all of these things that are part of their family, their history. And he goes on to say, you said to your servants, meaning to us the last time we were here, bring him to me so I may see him. And if you remember, the reason was, if I see him, then I know you're not spies. And we said to my Lord, to Joseph, the lad cannot leave his father because if he left, our father would die. And he goes on then to talk about uh, how jo J Joseph responded and said to us, unless you bring your youngest brother, you will not see my face again. I'm not selling you any more grain unless your brother is here. Therefore, we went up in verse 24 to your servant, my father, and we told him what you said. And so then he's bringing up all this family issues, the, the angst about what's going on, the fear of bringing Benjamin with them. And uh, in verse 25, he says, Our father told us to go back and buy a little food. And we told him we could not go. We could go if our youngest brother was with us. If he's with us, then we'll go. Because... We can't see the man's face. We can't do business with him. He won't talk to us unless your youngest brother is with us. And our father said to us, you know my wife had two sons, which is a very interesting statement because there were four women that bore sons to Jacob, right? But this is Rachel. This is the one that was precious to him before the wedding, and he considered her precious obviously all the way through. And she bore me two sons, one went out from me, and I said, Shirley's torn to pieces, telling the story of the coat and the ruse that they had played on their dad, and I have not seen him since. So he has written him off as dead, and he says so. And then in verse 29, he says, If you take this one also from me, and he comes to harm, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. We talked about what that was meant by that. What's he saying? Let's bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Yeah, it'll kill me. I couldn't stand it. I'd die from the grief, and I'd live whatever days I have between then and now in great grief. Verse 30. Now, therefore, 
when I came to your servant, my father, and the, and the lad is not with us, so when I go back, when I come back to, your, to the servant, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees it, in verse 31, he says, he will die. And therefore, he says, your servants, we brothers, will indeed bring the gray hair of your servant, my, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. And in verse 32, he goes on to say, your servant, meaning Judah himself, became a surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Judah's really feeling it in here. He's, I took responsibility for it. This thing's going bad on me quick. And I don't like where I'm at. This is difficult. He, <clears throat> he tips his whole hand to Judah, or to Joseph. Now, there's one thing in there that he does. But before we do that, let's go to Genesis 43. Let's go back and look at verses 9 and 10. Because in 43, 9 and 10, this is where he actually is recorded in saying it to his father. Somebody read that for us. Okay, so here, this is when he says, we've got to go. We would have actually gone two more times. We wouldn't be sitting here looking at a bare cupboard. And so, we've got to go. Put Benjamin in my charge. I'll take responsibility. And if I don't bring him back, you can blame me forever. What kind of a position would that be between a father and a son? You know, I think all of us as sons, having maybe very good fathers, but not perfect fathers, have at times disappointed a parent, a dad. And that, that's not a small thing, is it? And now he's looking at, blame me forever. I mean, this is going to be between you and me for the rest of our time here on earth as we both live. And so there's another interesting thing that that Judah says here that at best was an ambiguity, but he told it as a certainty. Look, let me see if I can make my eyes see it. Um, uh, well, where does he say it? He says... One is dead, meaning Joseph, right? I don't, my, my, my eyes didn't go right to the verse, and I'm sorry for that. What's that? Well, torn to pieces is what Jacob said, but at one point Judah said, one brother is dead. That, and he's referring back to when he saw them the first time. And they've been affirming to Joseph all the way through that they have one brother that has already died. And so he's still perpetrating that untruth, that lie. And so in verse 32, he, he, became, he said, I'm telling you, I'm a surety. In verse 33, now therefore, please let me, Judah, your servant, 
remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. And so it's pretty clear what he's asking for, right? What is he asking for? Let me take his place. Let me take his place. Let him go home. I, I don't want to go home and face Dad. And certainly it's not fair to Benjamin, although he probably maybe doesn't know that. We don't know if the brothers thought Benjamin maybe took the cup or not. Now, if they got much sense, they're going to know, well, the money's in all our bags. This was a plant. But they sure don't ever talk like it. And But anyway... Um, he gives his real reason for offering this for how shall I go up to my father if the lad's not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father it would be wrong it would be evil it would be a travesty if Benjamin doesn't go back and it gives my father this great grief that might even kill him and so Judah is saying, I, I want to stay, and, and I, don't, I don't want to go. The, the circumstances here aren't the way that I want them to be, and I'm willing to be a substitute for Benjamin. Now, it's interesting here. <clears throat> we have a, a couple of deceptions going on, and uh, one is about the death of Joseph. Um, and the other one then is that Benjamin is the only son that's left. Uh, but they have limited knowledge. So Judah proposed that he would, he would stay instead of his brother Benjamin. Does this remind you of anything in Scripture? Here is Judah ready to be a substitute for Benjamin, take the penalty that by all outward appearances, now we know the backstory, we know this isn't true, but by all outward appearances, Benjamin stands guilty before this high-ranking Egyptian officer. And Judah says, let me take his punishment in his place. Let him be considered innocent and I will take a, the guilt, even though I'm not really guilty here, according to the, the way things are set up. And is this not like what Christ did? It's at least interesting that here we have Jesus who came out of the tribe of Judah. We see Judah rising to prominence here in the end of Genesis, starting with his own confession regarding sin with Tamar. We see Judas's heart, Judah's heart beginning to change. And we see him taking that responsibility. We see him emerging as a leader. And now he here is the one who is not guilty of the particular sin that Benjamin is accused of, allowing himself to be considered as a substitute. And that's very much like what Christ did for us. He was not guilty of any sin, and he became the substitute for us and took the punishment that should have been ours on the cross and served as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God and against sin. What God did was just and right, but it was done against one who had no sin, 
that we might be considered sinless in his sight. And so our sin debt is paid. Here is Judah offering himself to do the same thing with regard to Benjamin. There's something in scripture called types. And that is where we see one thing that is real and true that's shown as a type to represent something that would be more full or more complete at another time. The one that's greatly mentioned in scripture as a type is Jesus regarding Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus. He was not in the lineage of the Levites. Melchizedek wasn't. And yet he was a priest and a king, which in the Jewish system that God set up to follow him, you could not be both king and priest. And yet Melchizedek was, and Jesus was. In that sense, we see a type for Jesus in Melchizedek. <clears throat> I don't know that it's necessary whether we do label this as a type or not, but certainly the comparison is strong and it's there. And it's, and it's just at least fascinating to me, if not actually a type, that here is Judah showing this kind of behavior out of his a desire to see the right thing is done, to see his father is protected, to let the, the punishment come on him so that Benjamin can go back. And it's also true that Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's through Judah's lineage that Jesus is going to come. And here is Judah showing a good example of a self-sacrifice out of love to make things right with regard to Benjamin returning to the father and not having those things, those terrible consequences. Questions, comments, thoughts? Okay. Well, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to add this morning. It is certainly interesting to see how this is developing as the tensions grow. Um, I, I really would have cherished some insights in the scriptures into the thoughts of these men, but they didn't ask me what needed to be here. Uh, because it would be fascinating to see what Joseph is thinking. I mean, he's got to know at this point, he's been around the brothers enough that by keeping Benjamin, he's got to know what kind of a place that he's putting them in. And... Um, we're going to see next time that he stops the ruse. He can't go on with it. It's gone as far as he can personally take it. And, and we'll see that next time. So let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we certainly have been greatly blessed through Christ. There is no one thing cherished more in our lives than the relationship with Jesus Christ that allows us fellowship, allows us to go into the very throne room of God with our prayers and someday maybe even physically with boldness, not because of anything we are, but because of who Christ is. Lord, we thank you for the example of Judah and how he is rising to prominence with his brothers and showing the heart of a man who is willing to be sacrificial and to act out of love 
and to be willing to give up the rest of his life to slavery in order to free his brother. Uh, Lord, we see in the scriptures men for who they, in the actions that they actually took, whether they were good or evil, sometimes, Lord, it may not even always be clear to us that whether or not you were pleased with every action they took. Certainly here in Joseph's life, we see some deception and some things that um, are at least questionable. And Lord, certainly lying is never acceptable in your sight, and he does a fair amount of that. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would keep our eyes open and keep our hearts tuned into your spirit and the lessons that you want us to learn out of these verses. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs>